I've talked to a lot of Christians in my life who have told me they wish their faith was just better all around, more effective and stronger. Have you ever felt that way? I certainly have. On today's podcast, we're going to be diving into what Paul tells us is a tried and true method of making sure that our faith is strong. So I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and let's get into it. Hey there, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you as always. Blessed to be with you guys as we continue our study here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I got to tell you, I've been getting a lot of great feedback as we've been kind of diving in, going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, all the way into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about eschatology. So many of you guys have questions about end times. And as we certainly, as I'm recording this right now, we have issues that are rising in Russia with the war with Ukraine and how Russia is trying to bring about a new world order, but they don't have the finances and the capability of doing that. So who do they need? They need China. Well, China can't do it alone. They can fund some projects and bring some, you know, more cheaper oil from Iran if they start providing um, nuclear capability to Iran. And so Iran likes that. So they're going to power China and they'll also help power Russia. And, and they continue to do that partnership and try to create a world order. Well, where does that say in the Bible that this is going to happen? Well, maybe not say it, it doesn't probably say it specifically, but I certainly can refer to several passages where we can see some of these countries that are mentioned, particularly the Gog and Magog invasion, Ezekiel 30 and 39. I think, well, what does that have to do with First Thessalonians, well, a lot, because as we're looking at the end times, waiting for the rapture to come in the tribulation period after the signing of the treaty with the Antichrist, whatever his name's going to be, but the son of perdition, as we've been seeing in Second Thessalonians chapter two, in this, this strong delusion that will fall upon the world, upon the unrighteous and God restoring and bringing about uh, a, a reckoning and also a restoration with his people, Israel. A lot is going to unfold with these particular countries. We don't know exactly when, um, but it's interesting. And so I think a lot of this stuff is stirring up within our hearts, not just curiosity, but some fear. And so as we've been diving into some of these issues on eschatology, uh, or that is end time uh, studies of the last days, many of you guys are submitting questions uh, asking specifics about the Antichrist or about the tribulation period or when will the rapture take place or I don't believe in the rapture, I believe this position, and that's fine. Um, we all have our different opinions. I just pray you guys have strong conviction in the Lord and that you're humble about it and that you teach people um, the truth of God's word on the essentials. But when it does come to the second coming, that's where we do not depart. That is what we are looking for ultimately, that we will rule and reign with Christ in our resurrected bodies for all eternity. And that is something my friends is our, is, is the blessed hope that we have and knowing that Jesus Christ will restore all things one day. So if you do have any questions before I dive into our last portion here in second Thessalonians chapter two, I want to encourage you guys to drop an email at info at standstrongministries.org and continue to encourage you guys as you pray for this ministry, as we're reaching people around the world, just going verse by verse in chronological order. That is our purpose here on the podcast. And so if you've missed any previous ones, wherever you get your podcast, you can check it out there. 
and leave us a review so other people like you can hear about this podcast and they too can stand strong in the word. So I appreciate your support and prayers on that. So let's just bring um, all of us up to speed to where we are at because where we're going to get into this last portion could kind of throw some people because if you look at the context and that's what we're all about in this podcast is looking at the context of scripture. The message today is how to stand strong in your faith. Now, as you guys know, this is Stand Strong in the Word. I run a nonprofit ministry called Stand Strong Ministries. And so, yes, this this portion of scripture that we're going to be diving in today, along with, uh, you know, Ephesians 6, 10 and 11, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, Colossians 2, 7 and 8. And then here in this particular passage that we're going to see in a minute in verse 15, so then brothers stand firm or stand strong and hold to the traditions. These are phrases that have really meant a lot to me. And our passion in the ministry is to reinforce biblical truth. And we do that by emboldening Christians, equipping you guys with a biblical worldview based on God's word and teaching you how to engage the culture for Christ. In order to do that, you have to have a strong faith. And it starts with our love for God's word for him and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. So when you look at this passage after what we just came through or came out of in verses 9 through 12, when we were talking about the activity of the Antichrist, and then we're, now we're talking about standing strong in your faith, thinking, what do those two have anything to do with each other? Well, a lot. Because here's the point, and this is what's so amazing. Remember, Paul's writing to these Thessalonians, going back to the first letter, and the second now is answering their questions. They have a lot of concern. And what Paul is doing is he's not just informing them of things to come. He's actually preparing them and bringing them assurance. We all need that. And that again goes to this message about the assurance that we need to have in our faith and, you know, in our faith in Jesus. And so when a lot of times when we're talking about these things that are going to take place someday, it could cause a lot of people to become discouraged, uh, to doubt where they're at in their faith, uh, if their life has meant anything, if they've even done anything with their life. I've talked to a lot of Christians who say, you know, before Christ returns, I don't want him to come right now, to be honest, because I haven't really lived for him. And he's going to be so ashamed of me. And that's not the way to live, okay? You know, having that guilt, Right? Now you want to be obviously convicted and yes, part of the things we talked about going back to first Thessalonians chapter four, well, you know, with the blessed hope, the, the glorious appearing of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ is that at any given time, the, again, that's the doctrine of imminency. He can return at any given time. He's our bridegroom. We are his bride. We are awaiting the return of our bridegroom to restore us back to him. He says, I will go and prepare a place. And when it's prepared, I'll come for you. We're living my friends with that promise in mind. Every day, we are not to neglect that. So that should be motivation. It should drive us with great conviction and love for him to do the things that he's called us to do today, no matter how hard or difficult they are, and not to worry about tomorrow. So when we're we're focusing on verses 9 through 12 about these false signs and wonders, the point is, Paul's saying, listen, these things will happen. I want you to be alarmed. I want you to be prepped and ready. But I don't want you to be looking for the Antichrist. I want you to stand strong because you're looking for the return of Jesus Christ. And that's where I part 
from a lot of my friends who are preterists or they're post-trib uh, views of things or they don't believe in a rapture. They're looking to the Antichrist. They're looking to prep and get us ready for the tribulation period. And I, in all due respect, believe that they are exegetically and theologically off um, and also chronologically. I think the Bible is very clear uh, on those matters. And again, if you have any questions, please reach out and let me know. Info at standstrongministries.org. But also now, as we're getting into this portion and, and you know, going off all this deception that's going to play, take place and this perishing, this destruction, this strong delusion, let us not lose heart, my friends. Let us not lose heart. Let us now look at verses 13 through 17 where we can draw from this truth and stand strong in it. And this is going to be key because the approach that Paul takes is not common to a lot of sermons that you actually hear. And again, that's what I like to do on this podcast is more or less is have a Bible study with you. Uh, not lecture, not preach, but just open the word. Let's let's look at the scriptures. And I love this because when you just look at the word of God, this isn't me coming with three points to help you stand strong in your faith. This is, okay, this is what Paul said. Remember, this is the context. This is what he's been telling them about with their concerns. He's giving them answers, okay? So he's informing them. But it's also transformative because notice as we pick things up here now in verses 13 of chapter 2, he says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, catch this, through sanctification by the Spirit in belief in the truth. Again, we'll be touching on this. This is not a, a common cultural Western viewpoint of saying, okay, these are things that you are to do to stand strong in your faith. We're going to break down these phrases that Paul uses in verse 13. And I want you to, to listen attentively as I was studying this and looking at it and examining and, and looking at my own life and thinking, yes, this is how I'm going to stand strong in my faith. And, and yeah, I'm not saying these principles or these, these action steps that I've put forth that I learned from a pastor or a book is not appropriate or is a waste of time. I'm not saying that, but the angle in which Paul takes to then tell them later to stand strong in their faith is interesting and very important. And oftentimes it's overlooked. That's the point, I think. And, and, and even for myself. So keep that in mind. Because notice verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we'll touch on this because this is so significant of what Paul is doing to bring them not just hope, not just assurance, but to give them strength. Because then he says, so then. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14 to understand how we can have a strong faith, my friends. Because this phrase, he says, so then, which is often used in most of, of Paul's epistles, it's saying in conclusion or therefore, because of what I just said, this will take place in the imperative. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, and this is a famous blessing a benediction. So if you are a pastor listening, I am sure that you have probably shared this to your congregation. And I encourage you, if you never have to do it, maybe, you know, the next service that you have, that you can uh, pray this over your congregation, even as you're prepping for the sermon, 
that you're about to give. But as you close out with your congregation, because here's the thing I was just talking to a pastor recently. You never know if you'll ever be in that pulpit again. You'll never know if that's the last time that audience of people will be there that Sunday. And so it's so vitally important for us because sometimes we can get in a rut, right? That comfortability that we have, that routine. And part of that's just humanistic, you know, um, verifications that we have. But the, the reality is uh, we, we don't know. And we're not to take it for granted. And we're not just to be in a rut. We have our routine to be faithful to it as a good steward. But we're not to lose sight that those are the moments, those are the times that we are to bless and encourage the people that God has put in front of us to give them the word that they need to hear that is being led through and by the Holy Spirit, right? Amen? So when you look at verse 16, 17, it says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work in word. All right, let's go back to verse 13. And again, remember, this is about how we can have a, a strong faith. And I, and I will tell you, uh, before we dive in this verse and break it down in these phrases that Paul uses, I need to have a stronger faith. You know, every day, one of my prayers is, Lord, give me a deeper faith. You know, that looks like that I'd be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that I would love unconditionally, that I would model Christ, I would walk in Christ's footsteps, that I'd be rooted and grounded in love, that I would outdo one another with brotherly love and kindness and, and with affection, that I would show hospitality, uh, that I would endure, that I would mourn with those who mourn, right? So it's all of that, that I would love Jesus more, my wife, my kids, the people God has put in my life more. And so as we look at this, my friends, what whatever is going on in your life and what you want your faith to look like, and when I say look like, I'm not saying like, you know, you know trying to get some type of, uh, you know, spiritual plastic surgeon, right, um, that can manufacture your soul to look a certain way or for you just to mimic and pretend to be uh, a mighty Christian, Right, we're, this isn't a facade. Right, we're not to live a life of hypocrisy, according to Romans twelve. But so, what, if you if you just say, you know, Jason, I just want to have a stronger faith, meaning that I don't want to just always doubt the Lord. I, I want to do more things for His glory and honor. I, I want to be more bold at work uh, when things come up, and I don't say anything, or my friends, you know, are taunting me because of my faith. Or my children have deconverted from the Christian faith, meaning they've departed, they've left, they, they no longer believe what me and my wife or me and my husband uh, try to raise our kids in. Whatever the case may be, let this portion of scripture help you to stand strong in your faith. Amen? So notice he says right off the bat, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So Paul gives thanks to God for saving those who believe in the gospel message. My friends, and especially if you're a spiritual leader where God has given you, again, a platform, a pulpit, whatever the case may be, to deliver his word to people. Uh, we are to give thanks to God as I'm 
about to go into a particular city to be a part of a conference as I'm recording this this coming weekend. I'm giving thanks to people that I don't even know who will be there, but I know the people I'll be serving with, and I'm giving thanks that, Lord, you saved them, that they put their faith and trust in you. We ought to always give thanks to God for for the people that he has put in our life who are our brothers and sisters. Notice it says, brothers beloved by the Lord. And that is something we are always to remember. One way we know we have a strong faith is that you're, you're, you are beloved by the Lord. Notice it says, because God chose you. So salvation is not complete. We know this according, as the Bible says, through sanctification by the Spirit. Salvation is not complete without the sealing of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 verse 13. So when we think of those who are saved, they are indwelt, they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And we thank the Lord for that. You know, oftentimes we, we, we just say in general ways that, uh, you know, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross of my sins and for rising again. Yes. But also to say, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for regenerating me, Titus 3, 5. For sealing me, meaning I belong, I've been purchased through the blood of Christ and sealed, confirmed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, verse 13. My friends, that gives us assurance that we are saved and gives us confidence that we belong to him because of the sealing of the Holy Spirit through the sanctification by the the Spirit, the Bible says. Now, many New Testament scholars do point out that in verse 13, it contains many uh, biblical doctrines, okay, that are packed into this one particular verse. For example, when you look at this verse in, 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 in verse 13, you have the word first fruits, okay, your first fruits to be saved. Uh, before that, it says that God chose you, and that's when it says as the first fruits to be saved. And then it has this word sanctification by the Spirit, and then this phrase belief in the truth that can also... Uh, refer to glorification okay so you have here three particular areas of doctrines election that has to do with salvation chosen by god sanctification that has to do with progression of how we are to live out our life here in the world but there's also ultimate sanctification or glorification meaning that as we're reunited in our resurrected bodies with jesus we're no longer in a sinful nature Now, let's break down the first phrase here. And I'm not going to give an exhaustive thing, obviously. There are books written for for a millennia on just this word chosen. But let me just say this. This is a word that Paul had used previously. If you go back to the first letter, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 4, Paul used the word chosen. Now, this is the only time Paul uses chosen to describe their appointed salvation, though. So he uses the same word, but here in verse 13, he's describing their appointed salvation, and he backs that up by using the terms first fruits, saved, sanctification, and belief. Okay, so man, that is, he packs some mighty power of doctrines in this one verse. So let's understand what he means then. The Greek word for chosen is haleto. Now it carries the idea, catch this, of God seizing for himself. Okay? 
Now, let's pause, and I understand that our audience and faithful listeners, who I love out there around the world, are going to differ of what this means. Synergism, monergism, uh, are we chosen but free? Are we free to choose or we're chosen to be free? Whatever the case may be, whether you're an Arminianist, Calvinist, in between, okay? What this particular passage, what Paul is speaking of is that, that salvation is of him. That's the point. God seizes for himself because creation belongs to him. Now, remember, he's speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ who are beloved by the Lord. So these are sanctified saints, which that's what it means, right? A saint is a holy one. That, that is a what we would say in general terms, a Christian, not just a follower of Christ, but a disciple who is devoted to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who believe that he has saved them from their sins, who are indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit and are to live a life for him. So this is reference to the church, my friends. The church is commonly referred to as also the elect in Romans 8, 33, Colossians 3, verse 12. Uh, it's a term once reserved exclusively for Israel. So what Paul is doing, he's doing this intentionally. He's using that same understanding doctrinally in Judaism and an historical truth of, of, of it, right? The fact that God hand chose, he seized for himself Israel by calling Abram, who becomes Abraham. And we have the Abrahamic covenant. And that's when you have the patriarch. And then it ends with Jacob, right? In that, in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's known as Israel, right? And that's where you have the Hebrew people come from and the nation itself, okay? And so Paul, by, by using this word, because God chose you as a first fruits to be saved, and he uses a Jewish term, first fruits, to describe their salvation. He knows what he's doing here. Now, there are several undergirding properties, and let me stress that. This is important that there's these undergirding properties to Paul's explanation of election. And we have to first identify that, again, because salvation is of the Lord. That's what Jonah said in chapter 2. Salvation is, is, a, is, a, is when we say it's a gift of God, it's, he's the originator of it. Okay, He's the creator of it. All rights belong to him. This isn't something that we, you know, started to have conversations with God and we uh, had some, you know, things that we wanted to introduce into the, into the contract, if you will. And we negotiate with the Lord and then out comes Jesus paying the price because we, we agree to that. That's not it at all. It is all God. It is all God. So these undergirding properties of salvation when it comes to election, what we have to first understand is it is initiated, if you will, by the Trinity. All three persons, the three in one. What that means is God the Father, he is the originator, okay? He's the initiator of salvation. So for God so loved the world that he sent, okay, his only begotten son. Now you can cross-reference this, by the way, to Ephesians chapter one, 
verses 3 through 14, where you'll see the Trinity and each member of the Trinity's role in salvation. And so when I say the originator, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. And then Ephesians 1, 7, Jesus forgives us of our sins. So Jesus here, uh, we see, is the atoner, okay, for salvation. He's our mediator. He's our high priest. He's a lamb that was slain for us. So he's the atoner. And three, the Holy Spirit is the sealer of salvation, the sanctification by the Spirit. So here we see that the Holy Trinity, and it's not just involved, initiated, created, is the originator, but also in the involver in the sense of being the atoner and also the protector being the guarantor and the sealer that the salvation is not lost. That's how we can have a strong faith, my friends, because of what Christ has done, what the Father has done and what the Holy Spirit has done for you and I to be saved. Because the fourth thing here is that the elect are those who freely receive the gift of salvation and they, when that we are called to, to maintain a holy life. I love what the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says in this passage. Now this is, um, we're going to get into some Greek. So I just want you to pay close attention to kind of get more of an understanding of what's, what's in play here. This is what the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says. Quote, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, heromei has a specialized biblical meaning not found uh, in classic Greek. Uh, elect someone to something. So here, God's election of the church to salvation. So that's what he's just talking about is, if you will, God's game plan was that he was not going to see his entire creation be destroyed because of sin. So here, God's election of the church to salvation, that that's God's plan. That's what he was, this is, so we're living out God's sovereign plan. That's what he's saying from Haramai. Now, in this sense of God's elective decision is to be distinguished, catch this, from oidekoia, okay, which means have good pleasure. It's the Greek term, the Greek number is 2305, which expresses God's sovereign choice and klero, which promises to the chosen as those called their appointed destiny. Now here's a here's a this word eklogome is used in Ephesians chapter one, okay, of chosen, and that term on the other hand emphasizes the selective aspect of choice, and then you have another chosen word in Greek as dekomai, and it's about acceptance and reception on the ground of God's good pleasure. Okay, so. We have all these different Greek terms based on the New International Dictionary of New Testament theology and saying that here Paul uses uh, heromai and it's a specialized biblical meaning that has to deal with elect someone to something. Okay, so what God's doing is God says, I'm going to redeem uh, people from their sin, meaning I'm going to give them that option and I'm going to call them to a holy living. That's what he's predestined us to live a holy life, Romans 8, okay? 
So here, God's election of the church, his saints, to be saved and to live as he lived. That is how Jesus lived. So that's the word chosen, okay? There's so much more, okay, guys, that I could talk about, but I'm, I'm having to restrain myself uh, for time's sake, okay? And just to, to focus in on uh, the chapter at hand. Then he uses this word that God chose us, first fruits to be saved. Now, this is a depiction of being the best of the harvest. Isn't that amazing? That's what it means. So how is Paul applying this then? Well, God is the one who throws the seeds of the gospel, we're told, remember in Matthew 13, in the world. And, and the cultivation is salvation. And it, it's to produce a bountiful harvest in the end among his people. So when God has chose you as the first fruits, again, uh, heromai in Greek, is, 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 again, has a specialized biblical meaning that means to elect someone to something. So God's election for the church is to be saved. We are chosen by God to be the best of the harvest. We are chosen by God to be bountiful in what we do. That's why we're not to be stagnant. So when people have a strong faith, it's because they understand by the grace of God, I am saved and I will live my life for his good pleasure. That is the first fruits that he means to be saved. Then he uses his word sanctification by the spirit. Now the Greek word is hagiosmos. It has a word of holiness that is in it. And it means the state of grace or sanctity, not inherent in its subject, but the result of outside action. We are sanctified, my friends. We have a strong faith because we're sanctified by the spirit. See, that's what I mean. A lot of times when we're talking about like, okay, pray, go to church. And those are, those are things we are to do. But the foundation of, my friends, of our salvation in the faith is in the Trinity and what the Trinity has done for you and I to be saved and to live a, a state, again, of grace. So this phrase, the state of grace or sancti sanctity, it's not inherent in the subject. The subject is you and me, but it's the result of outside action, meaning what? That God is the originator, God the Father that is, that that Jesus the Son is the atoner, uh, the redeemer, if you will, and the Holy Spirit is the guarantor, he is the sealer. So that's what it's about. We are sanctified by the Spirit. So when one, when one puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at that moment of them confessing with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that God is raised from the dead, Romans 10, 9, you will be saved, you will be regenerated, you're sanctified by the Spirit. So it's not just the washing of Christ's blood, it's also the sanctification by the Spirit. Because God initiated, God the Father sent His Son. This was His plan of action. So the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit looms large in the writings of Paul. Matter of fact, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 13 he says so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our god and father at the coming of our lord jesus with all of his saints so that's the point that you're be blameless my friends that you are in holiness when you're living a holy life it's because you have a strong faith and you're living a holy life because you have a strong faith because you've been sanctified by the spirit because god has called you and i to be first fruits because he has chosen us he gave us an option. 
And so this belief in the truth, God is truth. God is truth. And everyone who puts their trust in him will know the truth and the truth will set them free. So we have belief in the truth. Therefore, go back to what he talked about earlier in verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, remember the term was destruction because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They rejected it. Free gift that they could have freely chosen, but they freely rejected it. And God who is free, right? He is not contained by anything outside of him. He freely condemns. And so now we close with this promise. He says, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's an overwhelming feeling. It is an overwhelming feeling when you, you and I think of the greatest gift that you and I have ever received. It's not that Lamborghini. It's not that mansion on the hills or that beach house that you're coveting. That's not the greatest gift. It wasn't when I got, you know, my wife and I got this, the Nintendo Switch for our two younger ones and they're so excited and thrilled by it. And they say that was their greatest Christmas gift, right? The greatest gift is Jesus. The greatest gift that God wants us, his children, is to be heirs of his promise and to partake in his glory. You know, believers in Christ will one day be made perfect. So self, not just being saved from our sins, you guys, that that's the thing about salvation that oftentimes we just, we just think of the here and now. It's not final. Isn't that amazing? On God's view, it is. He see, sees us seated in heavenly places, we're told. Our greatest gift is to be with him for all eternity. Think about that. To be heirs of his promise and to partake in his glory. Believers in Christ will one day be made perfect. We will stand in the presence of Jesus. 1 John 3 verse 2. You know, Paul tells us, remember he says that we that our, that he may transform our lowly body. Why? So it could be like his glorious body. So that same as Dr. Geyser always taught me, that spirit-dominated body, that resurrected body of Christ, we will have one day by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And that's why, verse 15, he says, so then, brothers. Okay, so after all of what we just covered, because that is true, you stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught. Now, again, the traditions, Paul was referring more than likely uh, with what he was passing on, right, as the church was growing. They didn't have commentaries. They they had sermonettes. They had creeds, which are beliefs um, that they were developing according to uh, Judaism, right, and the fulfillment of Christ and his parabolical teachings and eyewitness accounts. Uh, and then the illumination of the Holy Spirit with Paul, that he was chosen, Ephesians 3, by the manifold grace of God to, to share the mysteries of the gospel. And that's what he's exactly doing right here, right now. And that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by letter. So there was, there's a lot of lost writings, my friends, that we have. We don't have the originals. And I don't want to go down that path right now and deal with textual criticism. That's not my focus and emphasis here. That's on other material stuff that I cover in my Q&A book with Dr. Geyser or my book, Stand Strong in Your Faith, right? That highlights this passage to some degree. 
where I get into the reliability of Scripture and the resurrection, that we have proof and evidence for that. But for, for our sake here, there, there, there was a lot of writings that these people, these early Christians were receiving that we don't have. So we don't know specifically, but we can guesstimate, and I think that it's not an improper inference. I think it's a proper one and consistent that they were dealing with these type of issues, growing them in their faith, teaching them the fundamentals, if you will, the Christian faith, not in deep theological terms because they weren't there yet. But nonetheless, everything that we just read does not fly in the face of any of the predominant councils that we have, the Council of, of Chalcedon or Nicaea or Constantinople. But that what he's saying is, you know, hold fast that Paul's not lying to them. He's not contradicting himself. He's not saying one thing in First Thessalonians and then saying something totally opposite in Second Thessalonians. Hold fast to what the Holy Spirit has called them to teach to this particular audience. And as we close, I want to bless each one of you guys right now, whatever you're going through in your marriage or with your kids, whatever decisions need to be made. You maybe are struggling to sleep at night. You're waking up and you're in a panic or you're filled with anxiety or there's depression or you got bad news from the doctor or you're suffering and you're missing that loved one or there's conflict or division or you're being persecuted or you feel that God is calling you to do something and you're not bold enough and you lack the faith to do it and you're not being obedient and therefore you're sinning. Let me leave you with this promise, this benediction. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work in word. May that be true, my friends, as you take that blessing that Paul closes with this beautiful prayer. And it's a double reference to encouragement, which means we can always do with more encouragement. And so I pray that your hearts are comforted and that you will establish your life in the truth of God's word. And in that, you will do the good work that he's called you to do, that you'll share the good word that he has called you to share with those who need to hear it. And I just pray that God will prosper your life in a way that you never imagined because you're obedient to him and that your faith will be strong, my friends, and not weakened, but that you remain resilient because as we learn today, guess what? Because God chose you and me to be his first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the spirit. And I pray that we will continue to hold fast to that belief because it is true. Thank you for listening, my friends. Until next time, keep standing strong.